Okay, we all know that content marketing engages and educates potential customers, not to mention helping you show up higher on the search engines. But who are we kidding? The time that it takes to write, design, and publish all that content is like a full-time job. That's where Breezy comes in, your new virtual content marketing team. At Breezy, we do all the heavy lifting of digital content marketing so that you can do what you do best, your business. Whether you're a consultant, agency, startup, or small business, Breezy is like adding a new department that allows you to scale without all the risk. To learn more, just head over to breezycontent.com. That's B-R-E-E-Z-Y content.com. Breezy, content marketing just got easier. Hey there, and welcome to the Startup Sanctuary Podcast. My name is Josh Webb, and I am so glad that you're here to listen to this episode. Um, Listen, this is the podcast where we talk about the personal side of entrepreneurship. So uh, whether you have an idea that you feel like is going to disrupt a whole industry or whether you're just trying to make it through this mess and try to keep your your business afloat, this is definitely the place for you. Um, Well, I have, like the rest of the world, been stuck in my house and going kind of crazy. And so I I have uh, had the chance to to get out a couple times we've we've been to the beach we've been to the lake and seen no one so <laughs> we've been le- very 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 lucky there and so uh, i'm really excited about uh today's um today's episode uh i have a fascinating guest on the podcast uh trevor bragdon um who is a behavioral scientist which feels very much trevor like you should be wearing a lab coat or or something of that nature um and uh he's a behavioral scientist and a creator of professional training workshops and so he's been working developing leaders for for years and his latest project is the seven figure fundraising um which i definitely want to learn more about so uh welcome to the podcast trevor hey thanks for having me josh and uh sorry for not wearing a lab coat for you but it's you know it's 90 not- degrees in virginia so you know and technically i can't see you so you could really pretend right you're I in could, a lab yeah there are there are behavioral scientists behind you all experimenting on people is that how it works i'm not really sure yeah, well, basically, <laughs> behavioral science is just the study of how we learn, make decisions, and take action. So sometimes you study people directly, and then sometimes, you know, where you actually run experiments. And sometimes what I like to do is you actually do things in the real world and then measure and see what the responses are. So it can be a whole range of things, but, um, you know, that's it's- awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Is I've, I've worked with uh, sociologists in the past uh, from a marketing perspective and try to understand how pe- behaviors are and how, how people behave. And 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 so it's super, super helpful when you have someone that has, has experience with how people actually behave. No, absolutely. And it can just help you from making just simple mistakes that you just wouldn't know about. And, you know, behavioral science relies a lot on sociology. And it's kind of um, what I like about it is it combines a whole bunch of different industries and brings them together, like economics, psychology, sociology, um, and kind of meshes them together and you and specializes in how do you use this in the real world to make a difference. That's awesome. Um, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Now, uh, we're we're new acquaintances, um, but uh, a lot of you know none of my the people on my show have have been acquainted with you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how uh, how you kind of got into this whole work? 
Sure. So I started my career uh, working in politics, actually. You know, the whole curse of your first job coming out of college kind of dictates career for a while. I'm sure uh, most listeners have had that experience. Um, but I worked uh, for about a decade running political campaigns um, and working on political campaigns from presidential to statewide races. Um, and I've always been fascinated by that whole decision point on what gets people to make decisions and then take action, whether it's voting for your candidate or, you know, actually going to the polls and voting when you're trying to get those, you know, what we call marginal voters, but those people, you know, kind of on the fence to go to the polls. Um, so I did that work for a long time. And in the 2014 election, I got to work on this really interesting project where, we ran experiments on what caused people to register to vote and go to the polls. And we did this in about 25 different states. And it was just this fascinating thing where we just studied people, interviewed them, ran a bunch of um, different tests. And we found that people were more concerned about making the wrong choice about voting than they were about actually going to the polls. So we kind of uncovered this thing where we realize that if you can get people to make a decision, they'll go vote. But if they're not sure on their decision, they're not going to go to the polls. So it's this funny thing where you think turnout is more about, you know, sometimes the mechanics of, you know, here's your polling place and these different things, which is important. But at the end of the day, they still have to make a decision because people don't want to be wrong. Um, and it was interesting, like we did these interviews after the election where we talked with people who didn't vote and they kept using these phrases like, I never had a chance to figure out the election. And so that whole indecision caused them not to vote. Well, and I don't know if a lot of Americans are about me. It's so funny. We uh, we have a little uh, conversation guide, and this is nothing about this on the conversation guide, but that's how it goes. <laughs> so um, I, I, this is like fascinating to me. So what what... In your opinion, when, you know, I hate also being told what is right. Um, mm -hmm. I like to kind of figure out for myself and just like have somebody give me the facts. And it feels like everybody's always trying to, you know, uh, pull your arm in one way or the other. So it's like, did you guys see anything about how you could help people make decisions without making them feel like they were forced in some way? Well, it's the part of the challenge with that is most of the time you have campaigns informing you, right? So you have people with a very biased view, you know, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats or some third party, they're the ones providing you most of the information via TV ads, mailers, and all these things. So it's really hard to get just like a straight nonpartisan look at like where the candidates stand. And like even groups that fill in these roles, like a lot of times they, you know, have an ideological bend one way or the other. Um, so it is challenging, but that's what we kept hearing from voters over and over. They just wanted the facts and wanted to be able to decide for themselves. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that that, that that works in a lot of areas, especially, you know, we're we're talking about um, kind of this idea of, of major fundraising and both, both you and I, um, you know, something we have in common is that um, I've, you know, I've worked with lots of nonprofit organizations uh, uh, for a while there, about five, five years or so is about the only organizations I was working with. And, mm -hmm. and now I work with mostly startups. And so um, one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, you, you have on one end, you have startups that are expecting a return on their investment. And on the other end, you're, you have uh, donors who are expecting a return on their impact. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, 
one thing when you're talking about actually trying to help people make a decision, which I think does play into this idea, um, you know, you talk about five, six and seven figure donors. How, how do you find them? And then, you know, for somebody who's that high capacity, how do you how do you kind of help them make a decision? Well, that's a great question, Josh. And for most nonprofits who are already running and operational, the key to finding new five, six, and seven-figure donors is to look at your existing five, six, and seven-figure donors. Because what you'll find is there's a lot of similarities to what those people are that have selected and chosen to support your nonprofit. Because each nonprofit's unique. You know, it's the leadership's unique, the people uh, who work for it are unique, and then how they execute the mission and the vision of their organization's unique. So you tend to gravitate and have people attracted to your organization that have certain qualities and certain like backgrounds. So I would recommend first is you just look at your existing, like say top 10, top 20 donors and think about what do these people have in common? Um, we had a nonprofit leader who did this a uh, few, I guess a couple months ago when he came through our training and he found that most of his major donors were in the manufacturing world. He had no idea really why they hadn't like targeted, you know, entrepreneurs who had made money in manufacturing, but that was his base of donors. So that gave him a clear guide on, okay, so if I know that my average donor is, you know, 50 to 65, they've run a, a manufacturing business, grown it, and these people like to give to, this was an education uh, nonprofit, they like to give to that. Well, that certainly narrows the list. But the best part is you can ask your existing donors for a referral uh, because they tend to be in those same circles. Um, so one of the things we recommend is asking your key supporters, those top 10, top 20 donors, for a single referral. Um, it's a lot of, you know, we talked about behavioral science. There's a lot of behavioral science behind that. But a lot of times when we think about referrals, you want to say, you know, hey, can you give me some names of people you think would be interested? Well, if I asked you, Josh, like, can you give me five names? You're going to be like, uh, yeah, I'll get to it. And, you know, you'd have good intentions, but kind of go on the back burner or you'd make a sticky note and then forget about it. But if I asked you, Josh, you know, what's one person that I should talk to who would be interested mm -hmm. in our nonprofit. And then the first person who pops in your mind is probably a pretty good fit. Or if you have to think about it for a second, that first person who pops in your mind will be a really valuable fit. Yeah. You know what, what I used to find too, um, is that, uh, somebody that's, that is a five, six and seven figure donor. Um, those people like, like to take trips with other people like them. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they're all going to go fly fishing or, you know, we're going to go hunting or they're going to do something like that. And if you can get in with one person saying, Hey, why, why don't you go, uh, go fly fishing with us or something like that? The likelihood you're going to build some real relationships and you don't, I mean, you don't even have to really talk about you know, no call to action at all. Just build those relationships. Uh, I found that by the end of that, you, you all of a sudden got three. Right. And that's have, such, have you found that? Yeah, that's such a great point, Josh. And it's, I think it's partially to do with people who give five, six and seven figure donations. These are people who usually have built something, um, whether it's a business, um, usually their own business. Typically that's how they've accumulated wealth. And they've done that by partnering with other people. Like they didn't do it on their own. They found smart people and worked with them in some sort of partnership arrangement. So they tend to really value 
you know, trusting individuals and that kind of gut instinct with people. So if you get a chance to like go fly fishing with them, they get to judge your character and really see how you are as a person. Um, exactly. One of the things we say is uh, really big donors invest in chefs, not restaurants. So they're really concerned with the leadership and, you know, knowing that, you know, this whole thing, you're a lot of times we're figuring it out as we go along with a nonprofit, especially now in this, you know, crazy pandemic time is the quality of the leadership matters and those people making the decisions and trying to um, improvise and figure out how to get this thing done. Um, those are the thing factors that almost matter more than, you know, our clever way of executing because that will change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think what you're talking about is, is why it's so important to invest in yourself, uh, in your own leadership. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of joke about this, but it's like, go learn how to golf, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, do, do those kind of things, not, not to be fake and be uh, you know, unauthentic, but, but honestly, so that when, so you have something in common with these people. You have something that you, that you can do that you don't have to say, uh, oh, I've never, you know, pheasant hunted before. Uh, and so I can't go with your group of millionaires um, <laughs> to, to go pheasant hunting. It's like, no, you know, figure it out. Maybe, maybe try some different things. Um, but let, let me ask you this. Um, okay. Number one, a lot of the people that are listening to the show, they either have a new idea they, um, you know, in some cases they may be causes, they may be startups, but they're, but they're looking for funding in some way. Uh, let's say I do get introduced to, to one of these, uh, one of these people and I've never had, I don't have a current donor base I can look at. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times those people can come across as kind of like network starved or like overly salesy or, you know, like they talk about the elevator pitch, but that uh, having an elevator pitch is good. But if you've ever actually been in the elevator with somebody delivering one, it's like the most awkward thing ever because right. the person doesn't want to be pitched to. So especially in the elevator, you you're supposed to be looking at the ground, not making eye contact with everyone. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're please take my script. You, uh, you know, step on it. Okay. That's fine. Um, but you know, how do you suggest somebody, um, the, you know, the first time, how do they, how do they get their, their foot in the door the, the first time? So you're asking about setting up the meeting or when they're in the meeting, how do they talk about their nonprofit when it's still a dream? I've decided that I want to fund, I need to fund my nonprofit or my, mm -hmm. my business, but I don't have any current uh, five and six, seven figure uh, prospects. Gotcha. Okay. So the first place to start like, is coming up with the vision of what you want to do with your nonprofit and figuring out like what scale and what size you need to get to, to be like a going concern, right? Like, does this need to get to a hundred thousand dollars before we can implement this? Or do we need to really have, you know, raising seven figures before we can get this going? So initially like those are tend to be uh, friend and family, you know, kind of rounds, kind of like when you're starting a business as you go and you meet with the people, you know, and tapping your own network, but then look to other nonprofits who are doing things in the same space and see if you can figure out who their donors are or even meeting with their leaders and talking with them about what you're doing. Um, one of the things that's really clear is donors don't tend to just give to one nonprofit. Like if I'm interested in education space, I might give to four or five different nonprofits operating, you know, maybe it's a charter school here, someone else doing something over here. Um, but I might give to five or six. So if you find someone who's already interested in your topic or in whatever the niche is for your nonprofit, those are the people 
who want to give. I mean, one of the things, the other big thing is look for people who are already donors. So <laughs> people are either like really philanthropic or they're not. And those are like personal decisions they make, obviously, to make those decisions to give away their wealth. But finding people who are already giving um, and then going and seeing and meeting with those people would be key. Absolutely. Do you find that they tend to be on boards as well? Yeah, boards of local nonprofits. Um, you can see them too. Uh, the other thing is to buy your way into another nonprofit's um event that they're doing. You know, if mm -hmm. someone's doing an event, they have a thousand dollar ticket and then like a twenty-five or five thousand dollar ticket, buy the high price ticket and then go and that will be a VIP reception full of people who are really high-end donors. Now you don't want to be pitching yourself at that point because then you know like that's kind of um, going back to the elevator, it's not the appropriate time. But you'd be having those conversations like you mentioned you know, going on the, uh, you know, hunting trip or something, but you're interacting them in, you're interacting with them in a social setting. And then they get to know you, you might give them a card and say, I'd like to follow up with you after this event, and then follow up and set up an in person meeting where you talk about your nonprofit in detail and ask for money. You never do that at someone else's event, that would be really tacky. But you can just go and, you know, if, the best place to be is a room full of people who have already paid five or $10,000 to be there. Yep. I, I've definitely found, I mean, this kind of goes back to the building relationships thing. You know, I can think back of, you know, when, when I first got started doing any kind of pitching and the first, you know, the first thing that I would always think is, oh, you got to take advantage of this opportunity. And you do, but it, it is a case where it's like, take advantage of the opportunity to build a relationship with that person. You know, mm -hmm. eventually these, you know, people don't get to, to have that much money without being pretty smart. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so half the time, you know, someone has introduced, will introduce you, um, or, or when they, they meet you, they're going to ask you about what you do or, or, you know, what your nonprofit does, uh, if they're, if they're interested and the more they get to know you, they will be interested. Um, and the, you know, a smart person, the second they're talking to you, if they see like, um, a, a real problem that you're solving or, um, you know, maybe even a, a business, you know, kind of a business opportunity or an opportunity they feel like they could have to make a lot of impact. They're gonna, you know, they're going to get into a business conversation with you pretty quick. That's what I found, mm -hmm. um, is, you know, um, I know a lot of the people that, that I've dealt with too. I, I, I don't know if, if you're like this, but I am a, a presentation deck, uh, deck builder. Um, that's how I organize my thoughts as I, as I create a, some kind of presentation. And I always expect that these guys are going to want like some kind of presentation that I sit down and I have a TV and I'm walking through my presentation and they're going to sit there very silently. And almost every single time I've gotten one of these guys in a room and I started that within the first one to two pages, they kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 So basically the, the, you know, the idea is this, right. And they like skip past every large idea and argument that I've had. And they just like mess it up and start and start having a business conversation. And, and have you found that to be the case with a lot of these guys? I mean, some of these people over prepare and, and the truth is that they just need to know their stuff inside and out. Well, um, we find that when you're pitching a donor for a really large amount of money, we don't typically recommend going in with a slide deck because it does create that, um, it's almost like a barrier, right? They want to get to know you as a person and then you're showing slides and it's more like, um, you know, more corporate in some ways. So what right. we recommend is building a pitch, but it's more focused on building like a six, you know, five to eight minute pitch where you can tell the story of your nonprofit, 
like how you began, what you're working on today, what the future looks like and share that big vision. And you can tell it in a really compelling way. And then they might interrupt you and ask questions and then have a nice back and forth. But by planning out how you're going to say something to them ahead of time, you can kind of get back on script to make sure you're hitting on those key points. Because like you know this, you're a marketing guy, Josh, but like there's usually one or two really key ways to convey information or really one or two like really great ways to tell your story. And you want to make sure you hit on those. So what we recommend to people is when you go into a high stakes donor meeting, you're going to ask for a lot of money, is you start out, you, you know, shake their hand. Well, maybe not shake their hand right now, but if you're, uh, you know, right. if you're meeting, you know, stay across the room. Right, exactly. Stay six feet away. Um, but when you say, you know, confirm how much time you have, because a lot of times, you know, you might think you have an hour and it's really a half hour. So you want to make sure you know how much time you have. So you'd say, you know, thanks for meeting with me, Josh. Really appreciate it. I just want to confirm we have 30 minutes together. And you're like, oh yeah, great. And then have like chit chat for in like small talk where they get to know you for about 10 minutes. And then you want to move into your pitch. So you would say, then have like a transitional phrase that you have set up. So you could say something like, you know, I know your time's really valuable, Josh. So let me just take the next eight minutes. And I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we have planned for the next year. And then that's signaling to them, I'm going to monologue a bit, or I'm going to kind of pitch you. And um, then you can kind of get in, you're getting permission for them to start talking and go into more of the business side of the conversation. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and I, I, I've definitely seen that in the past. I know the the agency, I used to have an agency that where, where our, our primary thing that we were doing was helping people, you know, finesse their stories. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we would say is after we've, you know, after we figured out a really great way to, to identify what the problem was, how are you going to communicate what the solution is? Because a lot of nonprofits will essentially just say like, well, we do this and this and this and this and this and this. And it's just, it, it sounds like they're, uh, they almost like overwhelm them with the amount of information they have. Mm -hmm. So we come up with this really solid pitch. Uh, but one of the things I would say at the end is like, okay, now you need to practice this so much that it really doesn't matter at what point of the of the pitch they're entering in. They might ask you about the problem first, or they might ask you what you do first, which is the solution. Or they might ask you how you guys achieve your results. And so it, it really becomes about knowing it really well more than memorizing it, if, if that makes if there's a delineation between the two. Right. No, that's such a great point. Like, And this is something that's kind of an aha moment for nonprofit leaders when they're in our training is... People like you'll spend hours getting to a donor meeting. Maybe you'll get on an airplane, you'll get up early, you'll have all of this. But thinking about spending hours and hours prepping for that 30 minutes on what the words that are going to you're going to actually say in that meeting, sometimes that's like surprising. So we recommend like doing two hours of prep per minute of your pitch. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have an eight minute pitch, that means you're going to prep for 16 hours. Uh, but if you think about it, like, that is some of the most um, impactful time you'll spend as a leader of your nonprofit when you're pitching for a donation. So you're exactly right. You know, you want to practice it so you memorize it, but not like so it's, you know, you a robot and you're going through it only one way. You want to have internalized it in a way that if they ask you a question that throws you off, like you mentioned, you can jump right in and get to the, the answer their question from your pitch, but then go back to how you want to convey and get back on script. That's really, really good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really in the end, it's important to, 
to not necessarily know exactly what you're going to say to that person all the time, but it's, it's really, it's, it's preparing yourself for an opportunity that you don't know if it's going to show up or not. You don't know if you're going to be, you're going to meet somebody all of a sudden at a dinner that you had no idea was going to be there. You don't know if a sudden phone call, Hey, somebody introduced me and told me to call you. You don't know. And so the idea is to really just know it backwards and forwards. Uh, and then if you have a specific opportunity, I mean, obviously you, you know, you're going to want to prepare for that specific person, but, um, I, I 100% agree with you, uh, Trevor. So, Hey, so tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, seven figure fundraising. Um, you know, there, there are lots of courses out there. Um, I would probably say that a lot of people have, have, you know, if they're in fundraising a lot, they've, they've probably taken a million webinars and things like that. So, so how did you, how did you come up with this and, and what would you say kind of makes uh, seven figure fundraising unique? Sure. So, um, after my experience working in politics, I, you know, had gotten interested in behavioral science, wanted to study that more. And I went to London and studied at the you know, London School of Economics, their behavioral science program. And while I was there, um, I had this conversation with my brother who had founded a nonprofit um, and grown it uh, over the course of about a decade. He'd grown it to where they raised $14 million a year. And we had this conversation on why is it so hard to raise money? And why do so many nonprofits struggle with this? Because I was running a consulting company at the time and all my clients were nonprofits and you know, fundraising is the number one problem for a lot of nonprofits. And so we decided we we're going to put together a fundraising workshop that was exclusively focused on raising these large five, six, and seven figure donations using what I knew about behavioral science and how people uh, make decisions and taking take action. And then his hands-on experience of rapidly growing a nonprofit, starting with just $50,000 in seed money and getting it you know, to uh, eight figures. So we par partnered together. We did this. This is about three years ago. Um, put together this class and tried it out. Um, and we originally thought this would be just like this side project we did you know, once or twice a year. And it's grown now um, the last three years into this full-time business. And we've had hundreds of nonprofit CEOs come through it. Um, we switched, you know, we work, we do these as in-person workshops. Uh, it's two days, really intensive where, you know, we go through both the mindset you need as a fundraiser, the mindset of donor, like major donors, how they think differently, building your pitch and walk them through, like, here's how you build a really compelling donor pitch. Um, and I can talk about that if you'd like, but, and then we let them practice it. They get one-on-one -on -one coaching and then we talk about different ways um, to do, to structure your development shop so you can raise money rapidly. Um, and the interesting thing about it is most of this is adaptations of what works in the for-profit world, but used in the nonprofit world. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm really glad you brought that up. So, um, you know, many of my listeners are, are startups. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times it's, you know, it, it could be a case where they're in a round of funding, um, mm -hmm. or it could be in a case where, uh, the, the, you know, this is, you know, a gleam in their eye, right? They, this is a dream. Um, you know, how do you apply some, uh, some of the principles? I know not all principles apply, but I bet you a lot of the behavioral principles apply. Um, how, how, what principles do apply and, and what would you say to somebody that is, um, you know, that has a for-profit startup, um, to, to, you know, find funding for their, their company. So are you talking about with the pitch itself, like when they're presenting or on finding like prospects? Oh, sure. I mean, just any, any of the principles, like what do you, what are some principles that cross over you think? Sure. So I think the key with pitching in general is 
we, you know, depending on your personality, you tend to either be like more logical where you really like process, you know, kind of like the COO types, right? Where you're more operations based. And then you have people who are more relational, more like story based. And so what we see is people usually lean one way or the other and then rely on that in your pitch. So somebody who's really relational, really likes telling stories, their pitch has a whole bunch of stories in it, but not as much detail on execution and the plans on how you're going to get done. And then someone who's really operational, they'll be really detailed on the plans on how you're going to get done and the operation side, but not tell stories and not really get into the emotional connection to what they're doing. So what's important is doing both because you don't know for sure the, your audience and who's listening to you, how they're going to connect. Um, so what we talk about in, in how we design our pitch um, templates and these different structures for creating pitches is going back and forth between the logical side and the emotional side. So like in a donor pitch, you might start with thanking them for how much they've given in the past. Then you talk about the mission of your organization, what you guys do, and then you go into a story of, you know, the someone in need who's needed your nonprofit services. And then you shift over and say, you know, and because of that, that's why we're working on, and you talk about your plans and what you're working on today. So you're kind of going back and forth between, okay, here's the execution side, here's the operation side. Here's the story, the impact side, and mixing those two together um, so that you're creating this back and forth of, oh, I'm emotionally engaged in this, and then I'm critically thinking about this. I'm emotionally engaged and then critically thinking, and that back and forth. So when they leave, you've played to both you know, the emotional side and then that operation side. Yeah, I, you know that's not massively different than um, than typically what I would recommend to my clients from a from a marketing story. So it's probably just you know what's built into people, um, mm -hmm. but it's like a lot of times it's like yeah, tell them what you do right up front, uh, and then immediately get into some kind of story of of where it's changed somebody's life or it's improved somebody's life in some way, and then talk a little bit about the problem and the challenge and maybe support it with some some real data. And then go back into a story and then go into how it works, the operation side, and then, you know, what they can do and what they're going to get out of it. So it's, it's, it's interesting that it's like, I think what it's like, it's like almost like people go through fatigue. It's, um, I, I've noticed that, you know, a lot of people, they think they want, uh, data and facts and everything like that, but they're probably not really moved by that stuff. Mm -hmm. That's just supposed to, that's probably just the stuff that proves that you're not full of it. Right. Um, you know, it, that's what it really comes down to is it's like, okay, back up what you've just said, but people are the most part, even if they're not emotional people, they're all moved by emotion and they want to be moved emotionally in some way. And, but they also just don't want to be had. So at the same time, it's like, it's like, I, I love your idea of going back and forth between it's like, yeah, make them feel something and then back it up, make them feel something, then back it up. I love that. Yeah, exactly. And when the cool thing about that, when you've set it up that way is you start having like these individual like sections to a pitch that you can pull out and use other places, right? Like if you're sitting down next to someone at a dinner they're like, oh, what do you work on? You can say, oh, well, my nonprofit does this or, you know, your for-profit, you know, I do this. And I'll tell you a story about someone who helped and that's why we do. And then you get into execution. You've t told like just a little like one minute section of your pitch, but it's that couple of story versus execution. And we, you know, you know this, Josh, but we remember stories so much better than we remember anything else. Like if I told you a list of like, here's the big three things we're going to accomplish. And then I told you a story, you'd be able to retell the story 
but maybe remember one of the three things I said. Um, and we do, we do remember songs even better. So if you guys want to sing during your pitch, just go ahead and go for it. They're going to love it. I'm well, just joking. Don't well, you don't want me to sing. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm like the most tone deaf person ever. Um, <laughs> but you know, you raise a good point though on in, you know, one thing to think about, and this doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit or for profit is people want to remember something from your pitch. And usually they're not making a decision right then. They're going to think about it. This is particularly true for donors. You know, if you're asking for six or seven figures, they're not going to say yes right then. They're going to think about it. They're going to talk to a spouse. They're going to talk to, you know, a business partner, an advisor, these different people. So if you can craft what you're saying in a compelling way that's memorable, you're giving them a currency to talk about your work. So if you're incorporating a really good story that's interesting and then also compelling, they can go share that story and say, you know, I really like Josh. He's doing this amazing work. He told me this really interesting story about, and then they tell the story. So it has this great, this impact more than just even at the moment when they're sitting there, it becomes something they retell. And, you know, we all know as you tell something over and over again, or you talk about it more, you tend to become convinced as well. Um, so it's really, there's a lot of power in figuring out like what these small points are in your pitch that are really compelling and people would want to share. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, and I can't, yeah, I have to take this opportunity for some reason. I've never really talked about pitches on, on the show. And it's, it's, it's so important because whether you're doing a small little pitch just as part of like a little sales pitch or whether you're doing a major one, like we're talking about here. Um, ha, you know, being able to, there's certain things that you learn over time. And I just want to, I just want to mention a couple of these things that I learned. I used to, I used to do major pitches in front of, you know, CEOs of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. I used to pitch, uh, you know, marketing campaigns and, and, uh, big advertising campaigns. And a couple of things that I learned, um, I remember I used to have a nervous tick where I would say, well, to be honest with you, <laughs> and I one time had a had a CEO, and this guy was like, I mean, this uh, I won't mention the company, but it, it's a major major brand, and this was the CEO of it. And he stopped me in the middle of what I was saying, and he goes, "Were you planning on not being honest with me?" Wow, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> I said, uh, "No, I, I was just you know saying uh, I I, was, I think." I don't know. And I think I, stu I stuttered and I got, I got through it. But I, what I noticed is that, I, that a couple things is that, you know, really somebody of that caliber, they're, they're looking at a couple things they're looking at, okay, number one, do I trust this person? Is there, is this person mm -hmm. seem trustworthy? Okay. So, you know, for instance, if you get a, a personal recommendation, well, a lot of the trust is there because of the equity they have built with that other person. Right. And so, and, and so it's a little bit easier when you're talking to somebody that, that somehow you got in the door or maybe they were just interested and they really just don't know you at all. Their default, uh, you know, default demeanor is going to be this person probably is trying to sell me something that I don't want. And so it's like, they're sizing you up to go, can, do I trust this person? And then they're immediately going to, okay, I know they're going to ask me for money, even though they haven't yet. Um, and they're trying to tell whether the investment is worth it, even though you haven't even asked them for money. Cause like I said, they're not idiots. Mm -hmm. Um, and on top of it, and so you have all these kind of things that you're trying to do, but most of it has very little to do with your actual idea in, in, in from what I've seen eventually. I mean, but I would say it's probably meeting two or three. It'll come down to your actual idea and how you're going to execute it. Um, and another thing, and this will kind of be my, my final thought on it. I've noticed that, that, um, when, when I've won, so if I'm in the meeting with a major caliber person and all of a sudden they start brainstorming with me, it doesn't matter if what they're saying would totally derail the entire organization. 
if they're brainstorming with you, they're kind of in. Like they like the idea, they kind of want to be part of it. And so one of the things that I've told people, I, I, I call it, you know, uh, founder's disease is when they start almost kind of arguing with, with the, the person uh, or go, well, we, we wouldn't do that. Or that's like, they don't want to overpromise. It's like, just be quiet. If they've gotten to that point, you're in. Just listen to them. They're really smart anyway. Who knows what they're going to do? But they're probably going to invest some money. That, at least that's what I've seen. Um, and again, this is this may a lot of times this goes back to whether somebody's going to be a client or whether somebody's going to be a purchaser. But I've definitely seen it on the donor side as well. I have, have you seen anything like that? I know I know your experience is a little different. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're seeing there is they're starting to already put themselves in the shoes of you're the vendor, right? And that's why they're brainstorming. They're like, okay, so if we had this in our company, we'd be able to do X, Y, and Z. And I think you're smart to like not try to jump in and try to over edit because they're right now, like those are like the germs of the their idea. You know, like an idea is kind of, they use that analogy, like a butterfly, you know, you can really crush it quickly or it can start to grow and take off. Um, and you're right. They're starting to think of you as that partner and putting it, um, starting to incorporate you into the business. We find with nonprofits is once they start doing, um, asking those questions, like, you know, if we were to do this then, right. You know, so they're like starting to already say, you know, I guess it'd be, um, like a partial agreement, um, with making the donation, what would be the outcomes, you know, three years from now or something like that. So you do see that, right. Yeah. They're starting to try to put themselves in the future and how it looks different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about, uh, about this is that a lot of this is that we're talking about, and I've mentioned this before on the show is about preparing yourself beforehand. Again, not preparing just for the pitch. It's about, it's about being the leader that they want to partner with. And I think you even mentioned it before. It's like they're they're looking to see: Are you the kind of person that can even do the thing that you're promising? Mm-hmm. Are you a person that if I spent if I invest you know six million dollars with you, I know that seems like a lot. If they if so, let's let's break it down. If I spend two hundred grand with you, um, am I going to see that money again, or am I just paying your salary for a couple for a couple years? Um, you know, they're, they're looking, they're looking at those things. And so, uh, for, for you, it's, it's this idea of really having to prepare yourself doing things like going to these courses, you know, the seven figure, uh, fundraising is, is so smart because not you're not just looking for tips and tricks. What you're looking for is, is to try to be the kind of person that they want to donate to. Uh, right. So that's why I love what you're doing, Trevor. Yeah, no, you're so right on that. And one thing too, is like, sometimes we think like, oh, because I'm young or, you know, if you're a founder in their twenties or thirties, you know, like I don't have all this experience. There's so much more experience than me, but they like to see like themselves in the people that they're funding. Right. So they might remember themselves, you know, like when they were starting out and didn't know what they were doing. So it's not like you have to have everything figured out, but that professionalism, making sure you're putting in the reps of practicing, you know, we recommend you put yourself on video, like use an iPhone video yourself, giving your pitch and then watch it. Like we all hate that. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's only after doing our own podcast. My face is in that. My face is in those videos. I don't right. see that. Exactly. Exactly. Like even like listening, you know, you know, this as a podcaster, like listening to yourself, you're like, oh, it's so painful. But then eventually you get used to it. But then you start noticing these ticks get, um, and these different things you do. Like you mentioned the, um, to be honest with you thing, you might've picked up on that if you'd been filming yourself a few times, just, it just helps you smooth out, uh, because when something's smooth and you're really like connecting with it, 
you don't even have these normal questions um, because you're kind of lost in the moment and you're connected uh, with that pitch. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, I have to mention this this one last one. This wasn't one that wasn't that it was mine. I had I used to have a friend that had a nervous tick that uh, the way you know some people say um in between uh, mm-hmm. their sentences um, instead and I said um uh, instead of that he would say right. <laughs> and so basically he was constantly saying as, and so we're going to be doing this, right? And eventually and I, I remember him being in front of somebody and he'd said that he said that one. And he goes like, I don't know. Why do you keep asking me to agree with you? <laughs> he was like, really was confusing. He was like, you know, people like to do this, blah, 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 blah. Right. And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. Like you just, if you saw yourself, you don't even know you do these things. Like I know one of the, my ticks is saying, you know, a lot and I've tried to work on it. You know, I say it a lot less. But it's something you don't notice until you hear yourself. And then you're like, oh, okay, I need to work on this because it's just off-putting, particularly once someone notices it. You hear it over and over and over again. Yeah, and it's, it's, it is the worst to be called out on it. But it is, it's a learning experience that you won't forget and you'll eventually uh, kind of change it. Um, well, uh, Trevor, thanks so much for, uh, for sharing your, your wisdom. Um, listen, a couple things. How, number one, how does somebody know if, if they're right for, um, for seven-figure fundraising? Um, well, if there's a nonprofit leader who's interested in attending, um, they can book uh, a call with us. Um, they'll talk with me um, or someone else on the team, and we will go through. We usually spend 15 to 30 minutes talking about their nonprofit, what they're trying to do to make sure it would be a good fit. Um, and then they can come to the workshop. We also do a 100% uh, 100-day money-back guarantee. It's one of the things with selling to nonprofits that's always been important to us is mm-hmm. we want to make sure people get the value out of it. So you can come to our workshop, do all the training, um, do all the follow-up and still have time to decide whether you want your money back um, just to make sure the system works for you. Um, but it's for nonprofits that want to do big things and are looking to grow and want to do that through having major partners. We don't spend a lot of time on small donors. They're really important to many nonprofits, but that's just not our niche. Uh, We focus on major donor giving and really crafting um, compelling pitches and how to set up your organization to maximize those major gifts. Awesome. And then if somebody wants to uh, learn more or follow you guys, where, where, th- where should they go? Sure. They can visit us at sevenfigurefundraising.com. That's the number seven, then figurefundraising.com. Um, they can find us there. We have a podcast, the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast. We have a lot of free information on there, um, walking through like how do you do a seven-figure donor meeting. It's a lot of great content there. Um, or they can also join our email list where we do weekly videos with a short fundraising tip. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for being on the show, Trevor. Um, it was a, ro- a lot of really good information, and I know that uh, I'll be taking a lot from from this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Startup Sanctuary Podcast. Um, obviously, a lot of the stuff we talked about, uh, including the seven-figure fundraising link, will be in the notes. Um, and listen, if you want to um, to know a little bit about how uh, Web Advisory Group, that's the that's the group that I lead, um, helps leaders realize their unique vision, then uh, you can always check out more content like this and, and content about uh, how we 
work at webadvisorygroup.com. That's web with two Bs, advisorygroup.com. Thanks you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with somebody. And uh, and also um, leave a review on wherever you're listening. Uh, surprisingly, uh, it helps people see, um, see that this episode is available and see that we're actually uh, something that exists. So I'd really appreciate it if you do that. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time on the Startup Sanctuary Podcast. Okay, this year, I'm going to write a blog post a week. Um, or maybe once a month. I'm going to post on all of our social media platforms every day this week. Wait, how do you use this program again? Ugh, forget it. I have a great idea for a piece of content that's going to get me leads. Maybe if I dedicate a whole week to it, I'll get it done. Ugh, who am I kidding? I need a whole team for this. We all know content marketing engages and educates potential customers, not to mention helping you show up higher on search engines. But who are we kidding? The time that it takes you to write, design, and publish all that content is a full-time job. Welcome to Breezy, your new virtual content marketing team. At Breezy, we do all the heavy lifting of digital content marketing so that you can do what you do best, your business. Whether you're a consultant, agency, startup, or small business, Breezy is like adding a new department that allows you to scale without all the risk. How do we do it? We call it the content machine. First, you get your very own content creator. They will meet with you every month to plan out your content calendar and strategically create content that works towards your business goals. Next, they handle all of the writing, design, and publishing of that month's content. Finally, you get a comprehensive dashboard that lets you know how your content is working and what the plan is for the next month. Stop procrastinating and get all that expertise out of your head so that you can build up a resource library and look like you own the internet. Make content marketing a breeze with Breezy.